One of my favorite Advent stories is the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And you'll remember that they are the parents of John the Baptizer, who was the one who announced that Jesus was coming as the Messiah. And you'll remember that Luke tells us that when John was born, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and rejoiced that God was coming finally to keep his promises. He said, this is what uh, Zechariah said, full of the Holy Spirit. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's speaking about the coming birth of the Messiah. And then he spoke about why God sent Jesus. He said, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And this is what we've been discovering so far in Advent. When you unwrap the gospel, you find that Christmas is about God keeping his promise to gather to himself a new people who will be in a new partnership with him, whom he will make new by giving them a new purity, by giving them a heart that beats with a new passion for God and people, and by giving them his Holy Spirit so that they have the power to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all their days. That's what God is doing by sending Jesus, and that's why we're here, and that's why we rejoice as well. So we're going to continue to unpack this good news this morning and next week as we wait for Jesus to come. Let's pray. Father, give us waiting hearts this morning. Give us longing hearts. Come, Lord Jesus, uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to see you high and lifted up. Help us to be drawn to you again this morning. Whatever's going on in our lives, whatever's going on in our hearts, um, would you settle us and, and help us to, to focus on you for just a little while? And would you stir in our hearts um, faith, uh, faith that would hold on to you, faith that would believe that even when we can't hold on to you, you're holding on to us. That's faith too. Would you do that in us now as we look at your word together? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus, as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole. See, you could probably all sing this with me, couldn't you? Uh, what a classic, 
classic story. Dr. Seuss said that as he was brushing his teeth one day, the day after Christmas, he looked in the mirror and the Grinch looked back out at him. He was the Grinch. In fact, they said that he, the license plate on his car read Grinch. He was the inspiration for how the Grinch stole Christmas. Now, that's pretty honest, isn't it? How often do we look in the mirror and are forced to confess that we're the mean one? Uh, that we're as cuddly as a cactus? Or worse than that, that our heart is just an empty hole? Dr. Seuss wrote those lyrics about himself. And it gets worse. Here's a verse that I didn't remember until I I looked this up this week. You're a rotter, Mr. Grinch. You know what a rotter is? It's a a British term for uh, a despicable, uh, awful person. You're the king of sinful sots. A sot is a drunkard. Your heart's a dead tomato Splotched with moldy purple spots, Mr. Grinch. And then this. Your soul is an appalling dump heap overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish imaginable, mangled up in tangled knots. Merry Christmas. What what if you are the Grinch? What if I'm the Grinch? What if your soul, what if my soul is an appalling dump heap overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish imaginable mangled up in a tangled up knot? Dr. Seuss said that it it was the easiest book of his career to write, but the hardest to conclude. He couldn't figure out how to end this story. He said, I got hung up on how to get the Grinch out of his mess. And he said he tried all kinds of religious solutions, actually, but it kept sounding to him like he was a second-rate preacher or some Bible thumper, as he said. And so he decided not to really say how he was transformed, but just to, to conclude that the Grinch was... Transformed, he had a small heart that grew three sizes that day, and there he found himself slicing roast beast with the who's. What Dr. Seuss couldn't figure out how to tell us, the Bible tells us how a grinchy heart becomes new, how a small, selfish heart not only grows three sizes in a day, but is absolutely, completely transformed. And though Dr. Seuss couldn't find a rhyme or reason for the Grinch's transformation, he knew it could happen. He knew it had to happen. That's why we love stories of transformation, because we know that we're simply not meant to remain hard-hearted. And that's what Advent is all about. 
God's people are waiting for God to come and make all things new, beginning with our hard hearts. The bad news of Christmas is that our hearts are appalling dump heaps. We all have the heart of the Grinch. The prophets had a lot to say about the bad news. Jeremiah said that human hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Sounds like Dr. Seuss. Zechariah said that people make their hearts hard as diamonds so that the law of God won't penetrate them. So, deceitful, desperately sick, and diamond hard. That's the bad news. That's the heart of a Grinch that we all have. But as we'll see this morning... Thousands of years ago, God promised in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The good news of Christmas is that the promise of God in Ezekiel 36 was wrapped in flesh and blood and hung on a tree for you and me. The good news of Christmas is that when you receive the gift of Jesus, you also get a heart transplant. God does not make your small heart grow three times bigger. No. Your small heart won't do, and it won't grow three times bigger. God removes that stone-cold, me-first heart, that grinchy heart that only beats for itself, and he replaces it with a new heart the heart of Jesus that beats with a passion for God and for people. So when you get Jesus, you get a new passion. So in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, uh, the heart of stone was a metaphor for this hard, cold, unresponsive heart. It did not respond to God. It was a me-first heart. It did not care about people. But the heart of flesh, according to Ezekiel, was, was this soft, warm, tender, sensitive to God heart. A heart that, that responded to God, that responded to others, that said, no, God, you are first. No, you all are first. So that's how Ezekiel uses that word flesh. But Paul in Romans 8, when we're going to look here for a moment and see how he describes this heart transplant. When Paul uses the word flesh, I don't want you to get confused. Ezekiel was talking about flesh, like a tender, warm, beating, pulsating heart. When Paul uses the word flesh, he's actually describing the stone heart. Okay? So I don't want you to get confused when we look at Romans 8 and you're thinking flesh. Um, Paul's use of flesh in these verses is describing the cold stone heart. So listen, listen to how Paul describes that grinchy, me-first heart. Now I'm going to back up in Romans a little bit. We didn't read these verses, but listen to verses 5 and 6 of Romans 8. Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh, the stone heart, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to the Spirit, that would be what Ezekiel calls the fleshy heart, 
set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So the grinchy heart of stone is the one that sets its mind on the things of the flesh. The flesh is that, that fallen sinful nature, that me first heart, I like to call it. The grinchy heart of stone sets its mind on the, on the things of the flesh, not the things of, the God, of God's spirit. The grinchy heart is the me first heart. And that kind of heart leads to death, Paul says. And then he goes on to describe that stony, grinchy heart some more in verses 7 and 8. He says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh, those who have a grinchy stone heart, cannot please God, Paul says. It's a heart that doesn't have a passion for God or a sensitivity to God or a tender submissiveness to God. That's the heart that Ezekiel called a heart of stone. That's the heart that God promised to remove from his people. And then in verse nine, verses 9 through 11, which we did read, he goes on to say how God has performed this heart transplant through Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. It's there in your bulletin if you want to read along with me. Paul says, you, however, those of you who are in Christ, are not in the flesh, that stone heart, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the grinchy heart is that stone-cold heart of death, but if Christ is in you, God has removed that heart of death and has replaced it with the heart of Jesus, and his spirit of life now lives in your body. Do we understand how amazing this is? If you have the gift of Jesus, you have the gift of a new heart that is no longer hostile to God. In fact, it, it wants to submit to God, like the heart of Jesus does. It wants to please God, like the heart of Jesus does. If you have Jesus, that's the kind of heart you have. But as they say on the information, infomercials, wait, there's more. There is something else you received when you received the heart of Jesus. Look at verses 15 to 17. Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is that Aramaic word that Loosely, we would say it's like daddy today. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So he not only removes that grinchy heart of stone, that me first heart, it gives us a new heart 
the heart of Jesus that beats with tenderness toward God, sensitivity to God, submissiveness to God. But he gives you the heart of a son, the heart of his son, Jesus, through the spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father. He adopts you into his family. I have a friend named Mark who years ago, uh, I started seeing on Facebook pictures that uh, showed uh, his new adopted son. His son happened to be from Africa. And Mark had pictures of him uh, with his little boy, had pictures of him kind of throwing him up in the air, catching him, laughing, playing together. Um, You could see Mark's love for his son. You could see his delight in his son. You could see the joy um, that he had in fathering this little boy and giving this little boy everything he needs to flourish. But there's one thing Mark could never, ever give his adopted son, even though he could give him his inheritance. He could never, ever give his son his own DNA. This boy, though he is really and legally Mark's son, will never have Mark's DNA in every cell of his body. But you and I, when we get the heart of Jesus, we get the Spirit of God. And we get his DNA in every cell of who we are. The new heart that you have received is the heart of God's Son. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. And that new heart beats like the heart of Jesus. You've received, Paul says, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When did Jesus cry, Abba, Father? You know, I asked myself that question this week, and I looked it up. The only place that we are told Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, in all of the Gospels, there's only one time he did it. And it was the night before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what Mark says in Mark chapter 14. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. This is the only time we have recorded that Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. It was the time when every cell and every chamber of his heart beat with a passion to obey his Father, even obedience unto death on a cross. It was a heart that was not hostile toward God, but a heart 
that longed to submit to his father, a heart that desired to obey him, to please him. Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, when every cell and every chamber of his heart beat with a passion to lay his life down for his enemies to make them his brothers and sisters. That's when Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. When his passion for his father and his passion for the lost, for brothers and sisters to join the family were at their peak. And if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then that heart beats in you, Paul says. You have, a cry, you have a heart that cries out, Abba, Father, because you have a heart in which every cell and every chamber beats with a passion to obey your Father. Your heart wants to submit to him. Your heart longs to please him. Every cell in every chamber of your heart beats with a passion to give your life, even to the point of suffering, for your enemies so that they might become your brothers and sisters and for your brothers and sisters when they act like your enemies. You have that heart beating in you. If your heart is his, then his heart beats in you. That's who you are. Merry Christmas. So how do we respond to this good news? If you have the heart of Jesus, then do what Jesus does. Let your heart beat with a passion for your Father. I want to stop for a moment because I remember and I recognize that when we start talking about God as our Father, we struggle, a lot of us. I have a dear friend who is an ordained minister who told me years ago, I cannot, I cannot understand God as my Father because my Father abused me so severely. I can't, I just, I don't, I can't think of God as my Father. I can think of me as God's sheep and him as my shepherd. That, that means a lot to me, he said. So I understand that all of us have been impacted, no matter how wonderful our fathers were, our earthly fathers, our understanding of God as our heavenly father has been tainted to some degree by even the best earthly fathers. So, but if Paul is right, if what he's saying is true, then regardless of how horrible or good your earthly father was, you have the heart of Jesus that beats for your heavenly father. And so, be passionate for your heavenly father. And I ask you, have you been ignoring him lately? Have you been running from him? You have a heart that beats for him, so stop running. <laughs> stop ignoring. Cry out to him. Abba, Father, Daddy, okay, I'm here. 
I know I've been ignoring you. I know I've been running. I know I've been angry. Here I am. And since you have the heart of Jesus, also let your heart beat like his with a passion for the people he's given you and the places he's, he's put you. Who do, you lead, who do you need to love? Who do you need to love, Jimmy? You have the heart of Jesus that beats with a passion for people, even if they're brothers and sisters who treat you like enemies. You have that heart. So use it and love them, serve them. And then the question, are you willing to suffer in order to do it. Because as Paul said, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So let the heart of Jesus in you beat with passion for your father, beat with passion for others, the only way we'll ever be able to do that is if there, there's one other thing that the heart of Jesus did that we have to do. Rest in your Father's love. Rest in it. You have the heart of your brother Jesus who rested in the words that he heard from his Father, the words he heard from your Father. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He said that to Jesus at his baptism, and he said that to Jesus at his transfiguration right before he headed to the cross. Those were the words, I believe, that echoed in Jesus' heart and mind. And he rested in those words, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. On Wednesdays, I get the privilege of praying with some of you who come by the office at five. But there's always this one little young lady who's pretty much there every Wednesday. Her name is Evie Lee. Uh, and when her daddy's in town, he's with her, and her mommy is always with her. Um, and one of the really fun things that I've witnessed over the past months is this little game that Jim and Evie Lee play. So Evie Lee's standing out there on the rug, Jim's sitting on the couch, and he looks at her and he says, I'm going to get you, Evie Lee. And she gets all excited and this huge 12-tooth grin comes across her face and she runs right to him. Now, I've been watching this, and I, I keep thinking to myself, this is not how you play this game. <laughs> You're supposed to, at first, run away from him, make him chase you, then he catches you, then you fall on the floor in this big ball of giggles and laughter and snuggling. But Evie Lee can't wait that long. She wants her daddy now. In the birth of Jesus, your father is saying to you, I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to get you. 
Run to Him. Run to Him. Don't wait. Don't wait. Run to Him. Father, we love You. But we don't even know what that means. And we are thankful of the truth, for the truth that You promised You would remove our stone-cold, grinchy hearts and not just transform them by some happy thing and happy song that the Who's sang, but you would actually take it out and replace it with the heart of Jesus. That's amazing. That's amazing. And oh, how we don't believe it's true. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise of this table. That you have come. And so now we come to you and throw ourselves in your arms and say, give me your heart. So we ask that you would take this bread and this cup, set it aside from its normal everyday use, and let it be for us a reminder of your heart for your children. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.